scripture reading this morning will come from Revelation 16, verses 4 through 7. Revelation 16, verse 4. It says, The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Please be seated. Well, good morning. And grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's so good to see you this morning. Uh, Before we begin, there is uh, one other prayer request uh, that I wanted to bring before you. That's our brother Paul Brown. Uh, we want to keep him in our prayers. He had a procedure this last week as he continued to deal with some struggles related to his prostate uh, cancer. And so we want to keep him and, and Lolly in our prayers. They've had a, a rough time over this past year. And, and I know that he'll be recovering over the next few weeks. And so let's, let's just keep our brother Paul Brown in our prayers. And Paul, if you're watching, brother, we love you and Lolly and, and hope that you're doing well. You know, this past year, our nation has become very focused on the concept of justice. And that shouldn't really surprise us because at the heart of our our nation is the idea of liberty and justice for all. That's a high ideal, that's a worthy ideal, and and I'm thankful that 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 concept and that idea of justice is so central to our national identity. But over this past year specifically, there has been the focus upon such things as social justice and even sexual rights when it comes to things like transgenderism and things of that nature. But the problem is, is that on one hand, we have a country that has become quite focused and obsessed with the concept of justice in certain areas. And on the other hand, we have that same country that is absolutely denying any possibility of real, absolute, objective truth. Or, really, at its heart, moving farther and farther away from the idea of God. That there is an absolute and total truth. Now, I don't know about you, but there's some conflict there, and we should see that conflict, right? Because you have a couple of different problems if there is no such thing as God, and if there is no such thing as absolute truth. The first problem you're going to run into is, is if there is no absolute truth, then there are no such things as rights. And I have no right to say that you must treat me a certain way, and, and, and I have no right that I say that others be treated a certain way. Because if there is no objective truth, and if there is no God, then there really is no objective standard. It's just simply preference. If I prefer to treat you that way because it benefits me, then I will. Or if it maybe helps society a little bit, then I will treat you with respect and dignity. But maybe there comes a time when it won't benefit society for me to treat you that way. Or it won't benefit me, then I don't have to treat you with justice. And I don't have to treat you rightly if there is no such thing as truth. And if there is no such thing as God. 
the second problem we're going to run into if we claim that is that we have to deal with the fact that I feel quite passionate about justice in my life. From a very young age, if you do something to a child that they don't believe is right, what are they going to say? That's not fair, right? That's not fair. Now, now we might, we might couch our language a little bit differently as we grow up, but we essentially say the same thing as, as adults when things are done to us that we don't think are right. That's not fair. Even the atheist who might contend that there is no such things as moral, absolute truth will change their mind quite suddenly if you take their parking spot or if you break into their house. There is no such thing as absolute truth, yet we feel this moral impetus. We feel within us that there are certain things that are right, that there are certain things that are wrong, and there are such things as injustices. And so we know without a doubt that there is such a thing as justice, and that there must be ultimate justice, that evil must be held to account and right must be vindicated. And at the same time, we see great injustices that are done within the world. Things that we look at and we feel are wrong. Innocent people are murdered. Children die. How is that fair? And if it isn't fair, how does God make things right? How does he rebalance the scales of justice? Those are important questions that we need to wrestle with as Christians. And we need to be able to discuss with people what the Bible means when it calls God just. What exactly is and what are we referring to when we talk about the justice of God? And that's our subject matter this morning, taking a quick break from Matthew. We'll be back hopefully with that next week. But I had this on my heart and mind and I wanted to talk a little bit about it this morning. And, and as we think about the justice of God... I want us to, to look at three particular points. Number one, I want us to look at the nature of God's justice. What do we mean when we speak of justice in reference of God? Number two, I want us to look at the confirmation of God's justice. If God is just, how does he go about confirming that justice within the world? And then number three, we want to see the satisfaction of God's justice. The satisfaction of God's justice. But first... Let's look at the nature of God's justice because scripture is very clear that God is a just God. You can't get around that within scripture. If we're going to see the full picture of who God is, then we have to see him within his justice. And if we don't see him within his justice, we're missing an important ingredient when it comes to the story of scripture. Psalm 33 and verse 5 says that God loves righteousness and justice. He loves righteousness and justice. The picture of Revelation within Re the book of Revelation can be quite terrifying at times because it shows God at times in his absolute just justice doling out to individuals what they actually deserve, which is language that we're very uncomfortable with in our Western mindsets and, and sometimes even within our Christian mindsets, people you know getting what they deserve. So God's justice, on one hand, can be a comfort to me. Because I know that if God is just, then he's going to make sure that things are right in the world. That he's ultimately going to hold people accountable. That's a comfort to me. That if evil is done to me, that it's not going to go unanswered. 
On the other hand, even though it is a comfort to me, it can also be a terror to me. Because if God's going to hold evil accountable within the world, that means he's going to hold evil accountable within me. And so it's a comfort and it is a terror at times. But what exactly do we mean when we talk about God being just? Mainly we reference it as God as the judge. Now very early on in scripture, we see God as a judge. We might not think of it in that way. But when you get to Genesis chapter 3, the Garden of Eden suddenly turns from a paradise to a courtroom. God goes from being the God who gives good things, who wants humanity to flourish. That's the main picture of him in the beginning. He doesn't really stop being that way. But he switches perspectives because all of a sudden he is, he is holding court with Adam and Eve and the serpent. And what is he doing? He is doling out the consequences of their actions. That's what we see Eden turned into. Not long after that, within the story of Noah and within the flood, we see God um, holding the wickedness accountable within the world. We see later Nadab and Abihu. We see stories of Uzzah, where God lashes out in Uzzah in justice and in judgment and strikes him down. And of course, those moments of instantaneous justice and God's instantaneous judgment are not limited to the Old Testament. We look in our Bibles to Acts chapter 5 and Ananias and Sapphira. Many of you are familiar with that story. When they come in and they, they lie to the Holy Spirit and God strikes them dead. And those stories within Scripture, those narratives, how we respond to those stories and how we feel about those stories, listen, how we respond and feel about those stories shows how different my view of justice is and God's view of justice, right? Because when we look at Adam and Eve, we think, wasn't God a little tough on them? Wasn't he, wasn't he a little bit hard on them? Of course, it doesn't matter that God created them and gave them life and gave them all these wonderful things and these blessings. We forget that. We just focus on the consequence. When we look at Uzzah, we, we try and give him the best of intentions. Well, didn't Uzzah have good intentions? Didn't God understand what Uzzah was trying to do there? Even David struggled with that, do you remember? We recently looked at that with the story of when they're bringing the ark back and God strikes him dead for touching it. You remember David's response? He's angry and afraid. And, and what this shows me, how I often respond to those stories almost subconsciously or in reaction to them, shows me that how I view justice is sometimes different than how God views justice. And I have to be mindful of that because that's not a deficiency of God. That's a deficiency in me. Because if God is the ultimate standard of justice, what that means is most of the time, Jacob is far too comfortable with my sin. And I am far too comfortable with the sins of others. But God is not comfortable with sin. He is holy. And he holds sin accountable. And so when we're talking about the justice of God, the first thing that I need to understand is that God's justice is impartial. God's justice is impartial. One of the main qualities of God's justice is that in his moral assessments and in his judgments, he is completely lacking in bias or personal preference. Peter says this in Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, where he says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. 
In 2 Chronicles 9 and verse 7 it says, Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality, or taking bribes. God doesn't show favor for the rich over the poor. He doesn't show favor for the poor over the rich. He doesn't give a pass to his friends. Moses has to suffer the consequences of his sins, as does David, as we've been looking in our Bible class. Rather, in all of his judgments, he judges people for their actions despite their relationship with him, which is often not the case with us, right? We're really difficult, we're really hard on people that we don't know, but when it comes to our family and our friends, we often will give them a pass. We see David doing that within our class on 1 and 2 Samuel. But we do the same thing all the time. But God doesn't do that. He can't do that. Otherwise, he wouldn't be just. The psalmist uh, would recognize that God is impartial when it comes to the rich, to the poor, to those who are oppressed. It says, O Lord, in Psalm 10, 7 and 8, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and to the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. So God is impartial in his justice. Number two, God is not only impartial, but he is perceptive. He's perceptive. Now, when I, when I, when I judge an action, when I judge something, and we talked recently about how to judge properly as Christians from Matthew 7, I might judge an action... But I don't know your intentions. I don't know your motives. I don't know what's behind that action. I might think that I do. But the heart, the human heart is complicated. I don't know all the motives and the intentions that you might have behind that action. But I tell you something. You know who does? God does. God not only judges the actions, but he also judges the heart. Luke 16 and verse 15, Jesus says, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. Romans 2 and verse 16. On that day, when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. God, in his justice, judges us for who we actually are, not for who we pretend to be. God, in his justice, sees through our actions and sees into my heart. He sees the motives and the intentions. And that's somewhat terrifying to me because sometimes I can do good things with bad intentions and with bad motives. I don't know about you, but I know that I can do that. And of course, sometimes we do bad things with good intentions. But God sees through that. He is impartial. He is perceptive. Number three, God's justice is fair. Because God knows the secrets of the hearts of men, because he is impartial... His acts of justice and judgment always give what sin deserves. In Psalm 119 and verse 75, the psalmist says, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Notice that the psalmist has been afflicted, and yet he says, you know what? I could, I could sit here and say that it's unfair, but Lord, I know that you are fair, and that if you have afflicted me, it is in your faithfulness. That's a difficult concept for us to wrap our minds around. Because we know that we're unfair in our assessments and our judgments. And sometimes we might feel as if God is, is too severe. 
But again, when it comes to God's severity towards sin, that's because we are sinners and we don't want to endure the judgment of God. But God is fair. Whenever he deals with sin, he is a fair judge because he is able to be impartial and perceptive. And then number four, and this, is, this might strike some of us as odd, but God is not only impartial, he's not only fair and perceptive in his justice, but he is also merciful in his justice. We'll speak on this a little bit more later. But even in God's justice, God takes into account intentions, context, and information. I, I think, when I think about this, I think about the example of whenever Abraham deceives Abimelech in Genesis. When he tells Abimelech that, well, this is just my sister, and so Abimelech says, okay, well, I'm going to take her into my harem. And God comes to him and says, you're a dead man. And notice what the interaction between Abimelech and God in Genesis 20, verses 5 and 6. This is Abimelech speaking. He's saying, he did not tell me that she was his sister. In fact, she said to me, she, this is my brother. So Abimelech's saying, listen, I, I didn't know. And notice what God says. God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. So notice in that context, God does not just strike him dead. He understands the intentions behind it. He understands the context. And so he shows mercy to Abimelech in that situation. In Psalm 103 and verse 10, the psalmist says that he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. God is not a robot. He's not constrained by a force outside of himself. Otherwise, he would not be God. His, he is just, but his just is merciful, full of wisdom, and also full of love. Now, if this is the nature of true justice, that it is impartial, it is uh, fair, it is, it is merciful, it is perceptive, then when I make moral assessments of people, I need to do my best to reflect that same justice in my life, even though I will imperfectly do that. I need to, as an image bearer of God, try to the best of my ability to be impartial, to be fair, to be perceptive, to the best of my ability, and also in my judgments and my assessments, to be merciful, to understand the context, because that's the type of justice that God conveys as well. We want to be people of fairness and of justice when it comes to others. But number two, we need to ask the question, how exactly does God confirm his justice within the world. So let's look real quickly at the confirmation of God's justice. If God is so deeply concerned with justice, how does he ensure it is upheld within a world of free moral agents? How does he do that? Well, number one, he does it by natural law. There is within the universe a law that is just as binding as gravity itself. And that law is, you will reap what you sow. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. 
think about this, for example. We assume that if a person lives a life of recklessness, if they live a life of abandon, if they live a life of rebellion and sin, that that is eventually going to catch up with them. Why do we think that? Why do we think that way? Because God has created this world in which actions will inevitably end up costing you. There is a consequence to your action. And that law is so natural to us that we don't even think about it, just like we don't go around thinking about gravity very much, because it's just what it is. And we recognize that this principle is often completely embedded within life. Who made the world that way? Who embedded that law within creation? God did. As a means of ensuring that justice is upheld, even within the natural course of events and within the natural course of life, that often will take place. Number two, God confirms his justice by his law and by his word. God has revealed his will and his judgment against sin and injustice within the world. In 1 Timothy 1 and verse 9, Paul says that the law is given for the disobedient, for the ungodly, for sinners, for the unholy, and for the profane. God convicts men of sin, John 16 and verse 8, through his law and through his word. And so one of the ways that he has held justice accountable is by revealing his will as the holy and omnipotent God who is the ultimate standard for justice and letting humanity know this is what I require. And if you are doing this, you are under my judgment. And if you do not repent, if you do not receive the gift of salvation, then you will get exactly what you deserve. So God confirms his justice within his word. Number three, God confirms his justice by the government. Scripture is clear in Daniel 5 and verse 21 that God rules within the kingdoms of men. And one of the central purposes for God establishing government is the punishment of evil and the promotion of good. In Romans 13 and verse 4 it says, For he, that is speaking of the government agent there, he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. He is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. He's speaking of governmental authorities there. And so that is why one of the great miscarriages of justice within the world is when people in positions of authority end up punishing the good and rewarding the evil. That is one of the greatest and most egregious sins that those in authority can do, according to God. Because he has established them to promote good and to punish evil as a means of confirming his justice within the world. Number four, God confirms his justice by our own inner oughtness, what we'll refer to as the inner oughtness. That is, there are certain things that we know intuitively that we ought to do or we ought not do. Sometimes we refer to this as the conscience. Each of us has an inner moral compass Sometimes that compass is distorted by life and by other things. But it's incredible that as many human societies as there has been, there's always been laws that comprise each of them. They have laws against murder. They have laws against theft. They have laws trying to uh, speak against property damage. There are these laws, these inner oughtness. There are things we know that are good, such as, such as courage, and there are things that we know that are bad, such as cowardice. And nobody has to tell us that. We intuitively know that. Why is that? Romans 2 and verse 15 says, We show the work of the law written in our hearts, while our conscience also bears witness, and these conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse us. 
there is an inner moral compass that each of us is given that is pointing due north. And we feel pangs and guilt and shame whenever we do that which is wrong. And the word of God and the law of God heightens our awareness of that. But there is an inner moral oughtness that each of us have that God has given us to make sure that we seek and pursue and know justice. And so God confirms his justice by that inner oughtness. And then fifthly and finally, God confirms his justice by the promise of judgment day. One of the central messages of scripture is that a day is coming in which God will pour out his justice on the world, in which men will be held accountable for the evil that they have done. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, 11, Paul says, We know therefore the terror of the Lord, that every one of us must come before the throne of God and receive what is done in the body, whether good or evil. This is the great overshadowing certainty of all human activity. That God will judge the world. That he will judge the world. And therefore we are to seek and to pursue justice. But it's also the great comfort of the world. Because if there is no such thing as right or wrong, and if wrong is never going to be held accountable, living righteously and good is not going to be rewarded, if that is not true, which the judgment day promises, then what is the point of life? What, 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 it gives no meaning to life if there is no ultimate accountability within the universe. And so the promise of judgment day is, number one, a terror, because it reminds me that I have to live a certain way and I will be held accountable for my life by this God of perfect and absolute justice. But it's also a comfort knowing that evil will be taken care of. And number three, it gives a purpose to life as well. Knowing that all of life is moving toward this great and awesome day. But that's the problem, isn't it? Because it doesn't give me much hope when I look to myself. Because if Jacob gets only what Jacob deserves that I'm going to be condemned for all of eternity. And, and it doesn't matter how much good I do, it's never going to balance the scales within my life. There's always going to be an imbalance there. So how can that be resolved? If I'm worthy of God's judgment, and God is just, and in His condemnation of me, He's fair, but I'm still condemned because I'm a sinner. What is the solution to that? Is there any hope? Is there any possibility of getting out from underneath that condemnation? Let's quickly look together at the satisfaction of God's justice. Turn your Bible to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Starting in verse 23. Romans 3 and verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, let's be thankful that that's the beginning of this section and not the end of it. That's the story. All have sinned. All are under God's judgment. All are unworthy. If we stood before God on our own merits, we would not do very well. We would be condemned. But what is the message of Romans 3, verse 24? But we're justified by His grace 
as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Do you know what he's saying there? He's saying you are worthy of condemnation. You have no right to claim eternal life. You know of no right to claim salvation. But God in his grace saves you and justifies you in Jesus Christ. How is that? Verse 24. How is it? That God can justify you in Jesus, even though you're a sinner worthy of eternal condemnation. Verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he passed over the former sins. Now notice verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Do you notice what he's saying here? You're a sinner worthy of death, but God has saved you by his grace. Well, how is that? Because we already know that God is holy. He's just. He can't just shrug off sin and say, ah, it's not that big of a deal. Otherwise, he would not be God. If God doesn't care about justice, then he is not God. And so he can't just shrug sin off. It's inherently a part of his nature. So how can he both be just and justify us as his people without compromising his justice? He put forth Jesus as a propitiation. What is that big word that nobody in here uses in their common day language? What does that word mean? It means a wrath-diverting sacrifice. Jesus took upon himself the penalty that I deserved within his own body. He didn't sin. So he could offer himself up and say, I will take their place. I don't have to pay the penalty for my sin, so I will pay the penalty for theirs. And so he took upon himself the demands of my sin within God's justice. And because God was able to pour his justice out on Jesus, he can pour his grace out on me. That is the gospel. is the hope that we have because of Jesus. And you cannot see the justice of God clearly without seeing the justification that we receive because of Jesus. That is God's desire for you this morning. The language that was used in Revelation 16 of getting what we deserve That's a terrifying thought, and it should make you tremble. And it is exactly what you will get if you are not in Jesus Christ. But because of what God has offered us in Jesus Christ, there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 and verse 1. That is the gospel. That is the hope of salvation that you have this morning and that you can take advantage of. When we think about the justice of God, there's a question that Abraham asked of God in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 25. It's a wonderful story about the type of God justice, the type of justice that God enacts because There's a wicked, wicked city called Sodom and Gomorrah. And God knows that he has to bring justice on this place. But but Abraham knows that his nephew is living there, Lot. And so he comes to God and he says, 
God, if there's 50, if there's 40, if there's 20, if there's, he's bargaining with God. And you can imagine if we were writing the story, God would say, no, I've given them plenty of chances to repent. They keep spurning me. They're a wicked nation. Abraham, you don't know how bad they are. But every time Abraham comes in and finally gets down, God, will you spare them if there's 10? God says, yeah, I'll, I'll spare them. He's just, but he's merciful. But there's a statement. There's a question, kind of a, a self-reflecting question for Abraham in Genesis 18 and verse 25, in which he says this, Will not the judge of all the earth do that which is right? And the answer that we see in Jesus Christ is always. He will always do what is right. Now how that is determined in your life this morning is determined on whether or not you will receive the gift of his salvation. Because if you don't receive the gift of his salvation, when he condemns you eternally, it will be the right thing to do. Because you are a sinner who has spurned his grace. But if you receive his gift of salvation and he saves you because of what his son has done in his death and resurrection, it is the right thing to do. Because he has taken the penalty for your sin in himself. You have the choice this morning of where you will be on that day in which he returns and judges the world in righteousness to place your trust in him, repent of your sins, confess him as Lord, be immersed, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, trusting in his grace. You can have that hope this morning. Whatever your need is, why don't you come? Together we stand and as we sing.